Excellent. Welcome to this more technical session, I guess, compared to all the others. It is called Why We Need New Models of the Economy. Uh, we'll have one speaker, two discussants. I'm going to be the chairman. I'm looking at time. We start with uh, Professor Sherry Marcos. Uh, I give you 35 minutes. Is that possible? So we can end in due time. Let me introduce the speaker first. So she's Professor of Economics at the University of Essex. She has a PhD from us here. She's an alumna we are very proud of. Um, she's done lots of interesting things. Interestingly, her PhD was under the guidance of William Boiter. I'm not sure how much he read or guided you in that, knowing him. And she has, since then, she has started, transformed, founded and led, basically, the Center for Computational Finance and Economic Agents there. Uh, I believe we have a master's program precisely on these sort of things. And so the question whether we need new models, I guess, will be answered in the positive, but uh, we'll, we'll hear from you in the next 35 minutes. Thanks, you. Thank you, JP. It's a pleasure to come back to uh, an institution where you are an alumni. I bear the um, scars on my back. <laughs> but, um, yes, about year 2000 or so, I decided I was going to go off beast, go off from mainstream economics and... Uh, uh, I, the University of Essex, which is sort of um, regarded to be a place which is quite radical and um, encourages multidisciplinary thinking and so on, it, it really happened. I mean, I went with the professor of computer science to see the vice chancellor, Ivan Krug. He's a East European sort of Jewish intellectual. We said to him, he said, what are agent-based models? And I said... There was a famous uh, BBC program called Time Commanders where they recreated historical battles like the Battle of Agincourt and so on in the artificial computer uh, scenarios where you, know, you had these uh, heavily armoured uh, soldiers uh, sinking into the, uh, into the muddy soil of Agincourt, if you remember. And then on the other side of the battle you had human experts interacting so I said, that's what future policy is. And he said, oh, that can't fail. And before we knew it, uh, the Senate gave us a multidisciplinary center. Today, when I say that to people, they said never in many million parallel universes will that happen, where a lecturer in economics goes and tells the vice chancellor, hey, this is a great idea. So I ran the center for eight years uh, and now it's been sort of given away to the computer science department, and the economists didn't want it. I mean, uh, but I trained a number of very good PhD students who helped me with this project we, I'll be talking to you about. So what are agent-based um, uh, uh, models? I mean, they're computer programs that live in an artificial environment, and they have varying degrees of computational intelligence. And the important thing is that they can interact with one another and uh, what is computational intelligence? It's just the capability of making various decision rules. And these can be just simple fixed rules. So you can have them actually reenact if you want to test for perverse incentive of Basel II, which we have done. Have them follow the letter of the law and take on synthetic securitization. And you will see the whole uh, uh, gory scenario play out in front of you, i.e. that they hold RMBS on their balance sheets by credit default swaps reduce capital from 8% to 1.6% uh, because they've got CDSs from AAA-rated agents like AIG. And lo and behold, in like sort of three years' time, and this is FDIC data has this, uh, you find that they were completely uh, you know, out of their depth and uh, the crisis that unfolds. 
So there are more actually adaptive rules where you can have reinforcement learning like out of Roth learning or you will have genetic algorithms and so on. But these are more ambitious ways of developing agents. I would actually stick to simple rules in essentially to understand first and foremost the workings and the incentives given to you by the regulatory framework and um, you know, simple rules are also very good to work out arbitrage situations and so on. So CDS arbitrage was going on uh, at the time, and we captured that as well in this particular paper. So the important thing about agent-based is that the dynamics is not pre-specified, that it's not equation-driven. It's not like I give them, let's say, a stochastic differential equation. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, instead, what they do is they act, and we collect the variables for the state, you know, so the, the prices emerge as a result of their interactions, say, bargaining or, you know, about their when they sort of do buying and selling, and we have, let's say, winner determination rule, the prices then emerge. So this is the difference between equation-led macroeconomics, which most of us are familiar with, and the way in which agent-based models would, would, will deliver the dynamics of the state variables. Uh, the one thing, so on an esoteric level, you know, this thing about computational intelligence is very, very deep. I'll only give you two sentences. Yesterday at dinner we were talking a little about that. But I'm actually working on the very pragmatic end of things. I'm saying, what can agent-based deliver on the, on, on the basis of uh, policy for uh, you know, a deputy governor getting up in the morning and he understands what the situation is? And here we have Andrew Haldane's Star Trek vision. We want to digitally map the system, which is what we're doing in India from 2010. Uh, so the data comes up on a screen, and you can actually work out at a very granular level who owes whom what, because they're collecting the bilateral data, and then you can work out various changes in structures which are, which are very important. Because I think what we've lost touch with, with these three equation DSG models, is we've, we've lost touch with structures and emerging structures and the way structures change. You know, this granularity is lost on us, and we can recreate it using this ICT basis, this information communication technology database driven. I'm into database stuff because I'll say that if you really had to create an artificial model where you have to simulate it from scratch, it requires as much ingenuity as creating a computer game. And most of that would be just as arbitrary as um, I would say, you know, you may get some qualitative results, but for purposes of policy, you have to embed it in data. So the Vintage Santa Fe Institute Artificial Stock Market Model actually is a revelation. It's something I recommend to all of you to read. In it, uh, we have Brian Arthur's genius, like in, in, intuition, about why homogeneous rational expectations do not hold. It's a very simple concept. He invites you to think of these games as being what he calls ones which have a contrarian payoff structure. By that, you know, you have to be in a minority to win that game. That, so it, it's also called the El Farrell game because in Santa Fe, near, nearby, there's a bar. You want to turn up there and you, do, you want to be in a minority. Now, if you all had the same meta model to forecast how many people would turn up, so if we had homogeneous, a unique forecasting model, so let's say we forecast 60 people will turn up, then we would self-defeat our own objective because we'll decide, and all of us will decide not to turn up because, after all, we want to be in a minority. So this thought experiment will immediately tell you that in a minority game, and a lot of real-world games are minority games, i.e. You, you win only if you are in, you're a contrarian. If you're with the group or with the herd, you do not win those games. Um, in such games, 
uh, I have taken this further. There is no computable fixed point. You cannot work it out. There is no algorithm that tell you how to win this game. So it's such is such is the depth of this idea that the minute you have a contrarian in logic, the contrarian is called the liar. It's a basis of, a, of a girdle logic, which I've spent a lot of my time studying because it leads to genuine incompleteness and various things like protein behavior and arms races. But all of this is lost in mainstream economics. We don't understand the concept of the liar or the contrarian. Uh, determinism goes out of the window because you have to break rank. It's a concept that uh, the LSE school of thought has, i.e. that uh, you know, uh, we need to break rank, and that actually is a good equilibrium. When you break rank uh, and you anti-herd in complex systems, that is actually equilibrating to have heterogeneity. But where does heterogeneity come from? Uh, and that's a very deep thing, which I wouldn't actually go into today. Um, all right, so what do I uh, talk, to, uh, talk to you about today? I call it multi-agent financial net network models or macro nets and uh, how we'd be used for macroprudential policy. Now, two methodological problems are, are inherent to this problem of systemic risk. The first thing that hit me was uh, almost three weeks before I had to land up at the IMF, I discovered that market price-based systemic risk indices are completely without any information. It'll give you no early warning signal. And I'll tell you what, what I presented the day I arrived at the IMF, and I was told, look, that's not a good way to win friends and influence people at the IMF. I said, I don't care. I'll just tell them as it is. Um, the second thing is, you know, when you're up against designing problems got about negative externalities, we need holistic visualization. It, it, there are genuine problems, again, an LSC uh, idea that uh, there would be what we call, um, you know, um, problems about uh, the, the, the individual decision uh, not coinciding with the stability of the system as a whole. Um, and for that, you really have to see the system as a whole to work out that there is this mismatch of incentives at the individual level and the stability of the system. So it, it sort of comes up in many ways, which I'll touch upon. So um, I'll give you two applications. One was the original project I did for the IMF about systemic risk from global financial derivatives uh, to show how the system is totally uh, unstable, though the concept you know, at the level of the individual sounds like a good thing, but the minute you pass on the risk from your balance sheet to some in, you know, few intermediaries in the center, the actual network is topologically unstable. So it undermines the quality of the risk, uh, risk management that you'd be conducting. And again, you'll only see that if you see the system as a whole. And then, of course, the Indian system, you know, for four years now, uh, as I was saying, I've survived two deputy governors, the new governors now come into four. And we, you know, this is this in any sort of large project like this, there are scoffers. People say, why are you doing it? Why do you need to get all this data? But actually, I hope to convince you that without this, you know, we 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 would. No, we'd be sort of, we would be depriving ourselves of the new technologies that will enable us to take this big data and understand it in a very structural way. So, of course, it's all very well. People say, all right, you map the system, but how do you work out uh, what are your metrics for systemic risk? Again, we came up with some original ideas. I had to think uh, you know, quite differently from what was being proposed because of reasons I'll tell you in a minute. And I came up with this thing called the eigenpair method. Uh, at the end of the day, I'll argue that the stability of any dynamical system is actually a spectral problem. You have to look at the maximum eigenvalue. There is no two ways about it. Though vague and wonderful things have been said about people about stability of networks. 
it's something that I borrow from Robert May's work. Um, and the second thing is that this comes married together. The, instability, the metric for the stability of the system comes married with who is causing the instability. So you, the eigenvector centrality comes attached to the, uh, the, the metric that you have for in, instability itself. And this is very important. It's not like that you go looking. You, what you find in a lot of the metrics is they first identify who's creating the problem, and then they look somewhere else for the systemic risk metric. It's, it has to come married together, otherwise it doesn't make sense. So these are the three questions. Is the system more or less stable? So you look at a network. Uh, so, so from one quarter to the next, you should be able to say whether it's become more or less stable. Secondly, who's contributing to the risk? And the third thing is, well, whoever is con contributing to the risk, how can we design a PIGU tax? Because, you know, the time has come that we put an end to all the socialization of losses, i.e. they prioritize the profits, you know, this is Stiglitz's words. And then, you know, when you know this, the system, you can, you can design an escrow fund. Um, I'm not saying that in India they're going to uh, name and shame the SIFIs or, uh, you know, but they, they, they definitely want to know what sort of private uh, penalty they can put on these various uh, agents that are threatening the system. So um, the market-based uh, statistical models of systemic risk. So this is one of the big campaigns I'm running at the moment. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Goodhart where you know, he has this famous paper called The Steadfast Refusal of Some Macroeconomists to Face Facts. Now, this is one of those facts that people are not keen to face up to, that, the, that market price data does not give you any early warning signals. Now, it's now called the paradox of volatility, and previously Hyman Minsky used to call it the paradox of financial stability, that under conditions of the boom, that's when the seeds of the crisis are sown. But under conditions of boom, volatility is low. So if you want to look at it this way, um, this is the thing I did uh, the day before uh, I went to the, uh, to the IMF. I took this uh, Gaviano Goodhart Stability Index, though I'm a great fan of Goodhart's law and so on. I just thought I had a, a research assistant just plot the Gaviano Goodhart Stability Index, which, which is developed from copulas and uh, cross-sectional, uh, very sophisticated, uh, uh, you know, extreme uh, fat-tailed analysis and so on. And yet, to my surprise, and then I had it plotted against the VIX index and the VFTSE, which are publicly available volatility indexes. Now, you can see for yourself, and you can do any amount of uh, sophisticated analysis on it, both of them are contemporaneous with the crisis. The volatility index did not give us any idea that there was a crisis. Furthermore, this is what the volatility paradox is all about. When there was a boom going on, which is the next slide, when there was a boom going on, you know, this is the FTSE index, the all share price index, volatility is low. During a boom, volatility is low. All risk will be underestimated when you take it from market prices. This they call great moderation. This was the biggest mistake, and any regime switching econometric models would have told us that this is not, you know, just because there's low volatility doesn't mean there is low systemic risk. Now, if you do not understand this, you know, and you can see for yourself, when, when the, when the uh, volatility is at a local minima when just the day before the crash, and then it spikes after the event. And this is the same. So now it, the IMF, this is from Laura Kudrus' recent paper, they call it coincident and near-coincident uh, measures of systemic risk. Now the reason is, the, the reason why they call it coincident and near-coincident, basically they're saying it's devoid of any early warning signal capabilities. So these are some of the, they try out 10 of the most popular 
a market price based systemic risk uh, measure. So that is called war of uh, Bruno Meyer et al. Now you can see for yourself, I mean, if you're given only two weeks' notice, you know, it spikes up with the crisis. So this is the underlying measure of the crisis that uh, the IMF develops. And then they back test, uh, you know, what the COVAR would have done at the time. It jumps up and, you know, comes down and so on. And these are the various ones. And they do concede at best you might get two weeks warning. I'm saying that's not good enough. I mean, this has become a cottage industry. I mean, this uh, umpteen papers, Devold and uh, Yilmaz, that's the econometric version of it, there is no help from any of these things. So where must you look for risk? Now, this is the point. I mean, you know where to look for risk. It's in the liabilities. You look at the balance sheets. There isn't any information here. So when I said this at the IMF, they said, oh, yeah, I'm being too critical. But now they've conceded that there is no early warning signals. So, um, so the second thing is the fallacy of composition problem. You know, when we, when the, the reason why we sleepwalked into this crisis is because risk management was studied at the level of individual um, institutions. The systemic concept was missing. I mean, this is the big thesis that the LSE group have, uh, are putting out. So at the individual level, uh, because I was studying derivatives, at the individual level, it would appear like the right thing to do, get the risk off your balance sheet. But nobody's looking at where it's all going. So when you actually then plot it, as I did for them, uh, this is what it looks like. So this is the five derivatives markets, the different colors. This is the interest rate swaps, the largest. Uh, then you have the credit derivatives. Then you have the forex derivatives and so on. The interesting thing that you notice is that the common elements of all five are the 16 broker dealers right in the middle, right? They are common to all of these markets, and they transact 95% of all the transactions. So I said, look, a system like this is no good because all the risk you may have sent off from your balance sheet, but you sent to a place where it ends up being unstable because anybody in that broker-dealer system, which is what I first learned, if anybody crashes and burns out there, it'll destroy that hub. I'll come to that in a minute. But this is something we did for the Indians. Now, what is so interesting, it's a very granular level about not just banks, but they're non-banks, insurance companies and mutual funds. It was like an eye-opener. The central core is the banks. But guess what? It's not their banks that are the net liquidity suppliers. They're actually insurance companies and mutual funds. And both of which, the mutual funds in particular, are vulnerable to global flows. So now, this, you know, suddenly you can see a foreign bank borrowing from an Indian mutual, mutual fund. Now, this is the level of granularity we need to be working at. Now, you'd say this is only glorified visualization, but I'm saying, look, this is a lot better. Why are we working with a world where, I mean, we have to make decisions, and actually the deputy governor pointed me and said, look, we're fed up of making decisions on the basis of what, he, what she calls anecdotal evidence, right? Everybody's got anecdotal evidence. So when the mutual funds were teaching on the brink, they had to send somebody to the basement to find the data. So I think they learned the lesson. And if India and China and so on, these ICT-oriented people, the largest number of computer programmers, if we can't do it or they can't do it, I don't know who else could be able to do it. So this is actually just common sense that we use the data at a very granular and structural level. I mean, I know, a lot, we, you know, we were just saying, but our students can't do this. I have to actually train my PhDs, take them to India, and then we sort of map these things for them. But the world is actually more complex than even a single network. What you are really must understand is that, you know, a vector of activities on the balance sheets is actually a multi-layer system. Each, each market has its own topology and so on and so forth. So the vertical lines are saying who's common across the multi-layers. 
So you need to generalize systemic risk across the layers and you have to find out who's important what. Because, you know, it could, be, it could be the interest rate swaps. It's a CDS, a subset of the derivatives markets that appended on a small subset of RMBS. So you have to understand the world like that. Threats come from, you know, various segments. It's not, you know, the minute you aggregate, you lose information. But what, again, I keep telling people is this, we can do this. It is within the realm of the science at the moment, of the technology of the moment, and economists really need to grow up and adopt these things. So... Um, this is my current hobby horse. It is Ali uh, Castron and Rakant's ECB paper. Now, this they call the global macro nets. Now, the reason why I keep saying is that we need to make the whole uh, network models uh, encompass global flows, which is the center biz data. You know, there are 22 banking countries exposures to the uh, to the liabilities of sectors of countries. The sectors being, as you know, the flow of funds, sectoral maps of of uh, non non bank corporates, um, of the public sector, of the household sector. We need to embed it and and the interactions between that. So we're working on model of this kind. So what you can really make out is that which sector, which country can trigger the whole thing. So we are moving away from gravity models and all that. And this, I'm so. This is a beautiful graphic to tell you how we need to embed this network model in a macroscopic way where you get the real side and the financial side. And at each level, when you sort of click, you can zoom out like a Google map. This is the future of how we deal with large data. So, uh, so, so it was all very great, uh, the Castrano Rakan, absolutely the way to go down. However, we have now a problem. You know, there... At the end of the day, we have to say, is this system more or less stable? And we need the, the, the actual stability matrix. Now, they come up with something called a loss multiplier. And uh, so this is a comparison. I'm going to sort of give you the a game away in a way that's saying that our method of looking at uh, our eigenpair method of looking at liabilities divided by capital. In other words, the, the, the thing that uh, your instability of a system is going to be compared with is a regulatory instrument, you know, which is a capital requirement, the threshold. I'll give you the significance of that. So as with most other systemic risk matrices, uh, theirs doesn't perform well. You know, it, it peaks after the crisis, their, their loss multiplier, whereas ours peaks, you know, well before it because it's liabilities. The global system is becoming unstable relative to the capital. You know, in other words, if this is the capital threshold, in other words, Say you can lose about 60% of um, the capital of the national, you know, the, this is the equity of the countries, of the 22 banking <coughs> countries. It's like saying if this is a threshold, uh, you know, we have already exceeded that in these years from 2005 to 2008 or 9, whereas their matrices actually show up much later. So this is critical because you want an early warning signal. It should show up earlier, not after the crisis. That just stands to reason. Right. So where do I get my um, stability indices? Um, this is it. Uh, Robert May wrote these two great papers in 72 and 74, and it's called Can Complex, Large Complex Networks Be Stable? And what he does is he, he takes a random matrix which has elements of the interconnected system, which is zero mean and, and, uh, and volatility uh, of, of certain ilk. And then he's, he comes up with a closed form solution 
for the maximum eigenvalue, and it is composed of three statistics of the network, the number of nodes, the connectivity, and sigma is a standard deviation of node strength. I'll tell you in a minute what that is. And that should be less than one in his system. And uh, what, it, what he's saying is that you cannot have a system grow. If the number of nodes increase and connectivity increases, then sigma should be low. You have to have a trade-off. You cannot have all three things go and the, and the system remain stable. Now, this was an eye-opener. This is not what you read in the literature about networks, because we had Alan and Gail, no less, telling us that, you know, it is great to have increased connectivity. No. If you have increased connectivity, then the, the system must be ho more homogeneous in the node strength. You cannot have all three grow. Now, that was an eye-opener to me because that's not what, what was being said. I think Batistan also uh, you know, says the same thing. We're given all sorts of mi misleading things. Secondly, the structure of the network matters for stability. We were simply using random networks. You know, we, by that, we mean structureless ones. So a random network, just to give you an idea, this is a random network. It has no structure. Nobody is too big or too interconnected in the system. Its clustering coefficient is the same as its connectivity. This is what the real-world systems, like a derivative system, looks like. There's a central core, and the tighter the core, uh, you know, the more dangerous it potentially could be. And most people are on the periphery, and you notice that nodes on the periphery are not interconnected. Now, the way each of these systems would fail is very different. Now, uh, so this was in our CDS paper. If you kill a uh, a centrally uh, clustered core type matrix, kill JP Morgan, it'll bring down uh, all the other four big banks. In history, as we know, it would be over. Now, a random graph, on the other hand, unravels like an old cardigan. It has no structure, so you, the whole system will unravel uh, in sort of random ways. Now, the interesting thing is, from the point of view of actually managing risk, it's easier to manage risk there, but you should know what structure you're up against, as opposed to a random graph. Because in a random system, you'd have to inoculate the whole population, whereas in a structured system like that, you strengthen the hub. So all of these things were completely new to us. We were learning this as we were going about our business, because this is not what the, the papers that are being published are telling us. So this is from the Indian system. We discovered that they're funded, which is the interbank system. This is the derivative system. As, as, as generally understood now, the derivatives is intensely clustered. There's only a single-tiered structure. This is more diffuse, and the RTGS, which is a large uh, real-time gross settlement, you know, the payment system, it doesn't actually, it doesn't have a core periphery. Almost everybody is 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 level pegging. Um, so each of these each of these markets have different structures. So when you do the multi-layer analysis, you have to take that in on on board. So this is our model for the the global derivatives when we did it for the IMF in 20, 20, 2012. Um, so how do we then uh, work out the actual stability index for these things um, and who's important in it? So these are the two, uh, two important things. And, the, and um, the stability of a system is vis-a-vis -a, -vis a threshold. Now, um, since the stability of a system is, uh, has to correspond with what they call uh, an appropriate dynamical system, what dynamical system are we talking about? So um, we, we think of it as a, con, um, you know, an a problem in epidemiology uh, to do with uh, contagion, which is what the word comes from, uh, that, and we, we say the important thing is the net um, liabilities. So our row banks are the borrowers and the column banks are the lenders. 
So the, you should divide the net liability, so if it's a liability between I and J, and you divide it by the capital of J, right? And then what we say is that if you think of epidemic uh, uh, literature, this is the dynamics of it. You know, the, 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 um, the, the probability of failure would be mi 1 minus rho. Rho is the pure rate, so 1 minus rho would be the rate of failure multiplied by its own um, uh, deterioration of capital. And this is the heterogeneous rates of infection. So this is, depending on your counterparties, this would be, you know, the different uh, amounts of exposures you would have to your counterparties. And this is what would lead to the failure. Uh, if, if, if the JF bank fails, the indicator function says that that would be the probability of your failure. So this is the dynamical system. So writing this up, um, so the key thing, of course, is rho. Rho is critical. Now, this is, I'll tell you how we learned about the importance of rho. Um, so with writing that in matrix algebra, it is this system uh, where uh, when you require the stability of the system, you would just require that its maximum eigenvalue, lambda max, should be less than the cure rate or the, or the buffer or, your, or you know the the threshold of capital that you are permitting to lose before this is you know before the uh, before all the banks can be declared insolvent. So rho will be your um, you know your policy variable, and and we say that is the same threshold for all banks on the basis of which we would require we would deem them to have failed or or, or determined to be insolvent. So uh, you got to remind me how much time I have. So the important thing is Eight right. So the important thing is, you see, rho in in Basel, you know, the criteria is this, as you well know, the tier one capital minus loss given default divided by risk weighted assets should be less than six percent. It's determined as a ratio of risk weighted assets. And what we discovered is that when you write this in terms of a threshold in absolute capital terms. So I was told in India that most banks had about 9% of risk-weighted capital ratios. We do, when we, can, we discovered how much capital would they have to lose in absolute terms uh, to satisfy this condition exactly, they would have to lose something like 46%. And this, this, was, this was an eye-opener again. What, what, it's, what, it, what we're trying to say is that we have to understand the implications so they said, God, do they have to lose that much of capital before they're declared insolvent by the Basel criteria? It is so. And it came up yet again. Um, so the, the importance of uh, this criteria, what we're trying to say is that what is administratively set has to be compared to the actual stability properties of your system. Every national regulator should check this out. Because they keep saying, oh, well, our banks are ticking all the boxes. I said, that's not good enough. You have to actually work out whether your system has a maximum eigenvalue relative to this capital threshold. Because if your system has far more liabilities relative to the distribution of capital, your system is potentially uh, at a tipping point. It's not a question of if, because I do eschew from actually determining probabilities. I just say it's a matter of when, not a matter of if, right? Um, so the question is, how do we then uh, understand the stability or instability of the system? And the, the upper bound of this lambda max, of the maximum eigenvalue, is this infinity norm. It's only saying it's the maximum row sum. So the person who will be having largest liabilities relative to the capital of its 
counterparties could be contributing uh, a lot to the systemic risk. So this is a genuinely system-wide property. You notice it's not an average of anything. It's not a weighted sum of individual uh, uh, you know, uh, value at risk or anything. It is a system property. And that's genuinely what you want, a system property to determine maximum uh, st stability of the network. So how do you then work out the uh, who's important in it? Naturally, from any maximum eigenvalue, by solving the eigenvalue equation, you will get uh, eigenvectors. And whoever central according to uh, the rank order of that uh, will determine who's important in the system. Now, we first made a mistake. There is a very important thing, that you have a left and a right eigenvector. The left eigenvector, the right eigenvector is the one you want for systemic risk. Because the direction of the arrow is saying who will cause uh, damage to others. So you, that is what systemic risk is about. And the left eigenvector will tell you who's vulnerable. So these two vectors are different, and we didn't understand that distinction first. Uh, so that, that was, again, something we learned on the way. That it's the right one that determines eigenvector centrality and the uh, uh, systemic risk, and the left one leads to the vulnerability index as to who's vulnerable uh, in terms of exposures. So these two rankings can be different. So how would you then stabilize the system? So here we have this problem that... Um, you know, we know that the system is unstable and we know who's contributing, the rank order of who's contributing to this. So you don't kill anybody like you do in a fine stress test. The ranking in the eigenvector centrality would be the best indicator as to who would be systemically important and who would bring about the biggest amounts of losses. So we know that we have to change the structure. Now you could use this even to work out um, interesting exposure limits and so on. You have to go into these sorts of structures to work out how you would control it. And you tax. This is something that is used even to improve security of uh, inter in internet systems and so on. You would actually use the eigenvector centrality. You tax according to that. Um, and you reduce, this, uh, reduce the, um, the, um, uh, the eigenvector cent uh, the maximum eigenvalue by taxing them. There are two or three ways you could tax them. We actually go for the rule that uh, you should tax them aggressively uh, or you should do what it takes to bring down, the, uh, to improve stability as fast as possible. Now, you might say, well, um, why was this the interesting way of doing this? Partly because uh, it is a progressive tax. You will tax according to the, uh, the damage that these banks would cause to others and you would tax them accordingly, you know, so we actually do some, some sort of uh, back testing to see how much must you, must you escrow, uh, how much must, uh, you know, so we sort of, we, uh, we work out what is the, how much must we collect in the super spreader fund, uh, can we, do we have to do the lot, or do we just have to make sure that there is what we call a super, uh, super spreader uh, light fund, i.e., so that the inter the the uh, the sort of central core is protected. So there are all sorts of things you could do once you understand what the problem is. So we actually do this, and we say, all right, if you tax them according to this, you will actually in the global derivatives you can actually save the system if you could escrow at any point in time. Now this is exactly like you would do congestion charging. It's something that I designed, uh, you know, uh, about how to get a congestion charge. So it is according to the existing situation, uh, you charge them according to that. 
So it, you know, you, you don't sort of worry about uh, second order effects or anything else. It is on the basis of um, what I call the actual um, liabilities that they they have uh, signed up to. It's fully transparent. We do not hold them culpable for pre-existing macro conditions. We do not hold them culpable for fire sales, serv- uh, you know, loss of value from fire sales, and so on. So this is actually evidence that if you uh, if you rank them according to eigenvector centrality, the the rank order of actual losses that would come about by killing them one by one as, as a trigger, there's a very high correlation. So you don't have to do any of the killings which are done usually like in the loss multiplier of uh, Castrana Rakan, you just need to look at the vector itself and uh, you may have the answers. So the, the bottom line is, would any of this help you sort of find out if there's a Northern Rock situation brewing? And the interesting thing is, this is what kept this project going ongoing in India. Um, at the time, they discovered, I mean, we discovered that a bank that was number six or seven maximum eigenvalue, uh, eigenvector centrality suddenly jumped to number one, Right. And I said, there is the Northern Rock situation. There is a bank that's aggressively borrowing on the interbank market, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, there was pin drop silence, and that was it. You know, so there is evidence that if we understand and use this and monitor this, even on a quarterly basis, nothing, none of this happens overnight, because this is building up of liabilities. It takes a bit of time. And you can actually, on the basis of, if you monitor this, you will see who is actually aggressively borrowing? Because it's not rocket science. Anybody who, in, who increases the maximum eigenvalue has to be somebody who's aggressively increasing liabilities relative to the capital of its, of its counterparties. Because remember, the upper bound of the maximum eigenvalue is so. Right, so there we are. So um, that's a long and short of the actual workings of this thing. And um, suddenly, you know, I'm now coming across certain various things to do with... Um, you know, it's becoming fashionable to say that there is no direct contagion. Uh, I had this said to me uh, by the FSG, F, as a FSB, um, you know, when they were doing the derivatives OTC uh, reforms, and I said, look, I, I, I looked, I said, look, what is your what is your tier one capital uh, threshold that you're using? And interestingly enough, for a subset of all the assets, they were using the tier one capital that they would use for the whole of the uh, balance sheet itself. There are all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm working with uh, with um, uh, the, the the director, uh, uh, Lauren Clerk. At, uh, they also came to similar conclusions. I said, what is your threshold? Because now I know what to look for, because we made similar uh, uh, mistakes. So um, there it is, you know, so... Um, there is there is contagion problems. It hasn't been solved, and we you know we need to sort of understand the structures, and um, we have to sort of look out for what we call a, a eigenvector central banks. Uh, we we can actually you know these banks will be winning back of the year awards, and but from a systemic point of view and from the regulatory perspective, they're actually ending up destabilizing the system. But unless you have evidence, there is no way you can go and say, look, uh, you're becoming a threat to the system. So unless we have this. Uh, and it is fully transparent and can be sort of delivered in a court of law, as it were, we won't get anywhere with this. So I'll stop at that because I think I'm run out, I've run out of time. Yeah. Thank you. We have two discussions. Uh, I guess ten minutes. Let's try and then we have some time for questions. Harold, do you want to, to come next? So on your program you had... Uh, yeah. 
Ralph Dumb, who was unfortunately sick and couldn't come here, and we are very happy, very grateful for Harold to come over just for this conference, last minute and so forth. He's working also for the European Commission, and the name of his departments are so long, I have to read it out to you. He's working for the European Commission's Financial Services Director General for the Internal Market and Services. That's what he's doing. He's been spending much of his time modeling in all sorts of situations, all sorts of things. He worked before this at the Austrian Federal Ministry of Finance, member of the OECD Working Party on Structural Economic Policies. He's an economist uh, uh, by training as well. Harold? Okay, thank, thank you very much. Uh, of course, this was uh, usually you say thank you for having me and inviting me, etc. And this, <laughs> this, this, this time it was a really last minute call, Ralph calling me. I have the flu, I will not make it by Friday. Uh, but I must say, when I saw uh, Sherry's paper that uh, yeah, I was supposed to, to discuss, uh, this was really a, a nice present from Ralph, because uh, this is really something that Ralph and, and me uh, in the Commission are, are, are fighting for, uh, to, to, to get more uh, uh, visibility, to get, uh, to get more acceptance. Because although uh, um, the, the Commission, in the context of the various uh, uh, framework programs, these are the seven-year uh, financial programs that finance uh, large European research projects, where you, you always need to have several universities from different countries uh, uh, working together. Although we are, have been financing a lot of this work, and, and, and Sherry uh, um, uh, mentions it in the paper, and continue to find a lot of his work, uh, it's not well known. And the second, the second uh, reason I, I was particularly happy to, 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 to read this paper is that um, um, I, uh, not, not so long ago, uh, uh, in, in, in 2001, I, I was part of a research project at the University of Technology in Vienna uh, where we tried to uh, build a model uh, to visualize complex dynamics uh, where in an agent-based computational model, uh, agents would try uh, to forecast uh, a, an external signal, a little bit like uh, in, infl in an inflation forecasting model, where the signal has a direct impact on their consumption. So it would fit, uh, you know, an agricultural society, and you have to forecast the weather, and has a direct impact on your consumption. There is no, there is no production in the model, so obviously it's a, it's it's a simple one. Uh, we were big fans of Brian Arthur and Santa Fe approach uh, uh, in, in, this, in, this, in this group. And um, uh, we thought about structures a lot. I thought that the agents should sit on a torus in order not to have any boundary problems because the torus is this nice geometrical form where you always have the same number of neighbors and there is no core and no periphery. Um, we, we thought about all, uh, the, the very uh, thing, and what we wanted to do is also something as you as you stress in this context, the didactical. Uh, to we wanted these agents to have three choices: uh, use their own rule of thumbs to 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 guess the signal. Uh, they could look at their neighbors uh, if they were more successfully. They could uh, observe the history of consumption of their neighbors, and if their if their neighbors was, were eating more than themselves, they could adopt their, their their rule of thumb, or they could use a macroeconometric model, and 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 they could choose from a choice a number of models. And what we would hoping what we are hoping to see in the end is you know, depending as the ex external signal evolves over time, and there you ideally would then use historical time series, the, 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 uh, the distribution of use of models in the, in the network would change. Mm. And you would switch from Keynesians to 
to monetarists, and, and you would see this in colors, you know, you would see this flashing up here, in that the, the agents move into the Keynesian camp in this period, and then they move, and then they move all out again because the models don't work, and they go back <laughs> to rules of thumb, because otherwise they starve. So very realistic assumptions about how actually people have to read and forecast highly uh, volatile and stochastic time series, otherwise, uh, uh, because it has a direct impact on the consumption. So I, I find a lot of this uh, uh, philosophy in the paper, and I, and I, and, and, and I see that you have uh, uh, made uh, apparently major advances. Although you went back even further in time, beyond Watts and Strogatz, to, to this gentleman made it, I, yeah, was, uh, May, yeah. I, I uh, was not aware of. Mm. But I, I think we are also... Um, Living in a in a particular moment uh, where uh, we 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 there seems to be a new unity of science uh, uh, emerging, um, because okay you 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 quote epidemiology and also some other uh, from um, from biolog biology uh, 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 people who studied networks, but take cancerology. I mean, you have today people who studied originally computer science or economics who develop algorithms to exploit large databases of uh, mutations of, of cancer signatures in order to, to find, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a very similar way, uh, uh, stable signatures. And you need uh, lots of data to find anything because it's a very messy uh, universe. So it's, I find it fascinating how, how, how we seem to converge on a, on a, on a, on a new common language uh, with, with, as you say, pretty standard uh, formal language. So I, 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 I tried to, uh, to gather my comments into, into four uh, buckets, uh, but I may not uh, empty all of them uh, to the same extent. Um, the, the main points I took away from your paper, very quickly, um, question if we have missed anything in this, in this, in this approach, and, and then uh, uh, if, if we have time, uh, maybe some discussion of... Uh, of, uh, of more microeconomic questions that, that, were f that, were, that were stressed by people like Sheila, uh, but also quoting actually Kahneman, Tyler, Tversky, the psychological framing conditions. Um, uh, questions maybe related to fairness principles that you, that you touch upon uh, very, very quickly in the paper when it comes to the taxation that you propose. And, and then finally, why we care about this research uh, at, the, at, at the commission and we, why we need more of it. So um, there were so many interesting things in the paper. It's difficult to to make a choice, but I found very interesting also this uh, this this low trade-off that you mentioned between inflation and 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 output. And I remember maybe you remember there was in uh, summer 2000 there was this big Economist title page, the the, the new economy. <coughs> and just yesterday I was at a conference on commodity markets and derivatives, commodity derivatives, and talked to a, a economist, senior edit, a senior journalist. I told him, look, I mean, actually, it's quite a shame that you that you went back from this, that you stepped back from this, this this point, because the point did not go away just because the dot com bubble crashed. Uh, this 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 low uh, this low trade off is a real problem, uh, and as as you mentioned in the paper, it it, it created a, f a false complacency uh, with monetary authorities, but it it, it 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 it's 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 really a uh, it's really a problem because we built the whole macro uh, around these trade offs. And so when, when one of these traders actually doesn't really work, uh, you have, it, it's problematic. Yeah. Um, then you, you mentioned correct, correctly this tremendous growth of inside money. 
inside credit, inside money. Uh, this is something uh, uh, we we also try to visualize better in our in our work in our reports. And I have brought some. I have brought uh, two graphs. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm not connected actually. But, um, if if we manage to to connect, where where uh, we saw it this morning with with uh, with Lord Turner uh, uh, showing this distribution how how the uh, how the uh, the asset side of financial institutions how little actually goes to um, how, how, maybe you will find it. Let's Would you see. know how to? I think that depends on function and one of the F. Ah, yeah, there's a, an F. Maybe the one with Windows that looks like a. a ah, yeah. It's on the F. Yeah. Function and then. Like. F6, no? Like, yeah, one of those. It's got two monitors. I just want to see. Ah, sorry. And oh yeah, okay. That's a good sign. Right. Pulling it out, put it back in. I think you should volunteer. Well, I have to actually deliver them, so that's. <laughs> 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 I'll give it to So um, on on this on this graph, if we manage to show it, uh, you 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 see how uh, until. The Crisis. Uh, I mean, a lot of this this credit was just revolving within the financial sector, not not uh, uh, so fine, uh, and, and and not financing uh, a real real business uh, 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 alternative uh, business uh, investment uh, opportunities, um, and. Um, it's an and it's then it's a nice graph. Uh, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then how? Uh, and and then how? When how? One year later, uh, and these are twelve-month flows. Uh, twelve-month cumulative flows. It is, you don't see this in the in the in the statistics that are usually published because it's it's. We need the cum cumulative flow to see this. Uh, how this completely collapses? This uh, this flow inside, this credit flow inside the financial system. Um, at the same time, by the way, um, and I'm jumping to another point. Well, I, uh, I, to those who are interested, I can show on the screen. Uh, in, at the same time, I'm jumping to another point. Uh, the, um, the financing of the real economy is actually tremendously stable. And, uh, and, uh, but even, even with this very stable base financing of uh, actual non-financial non -financial companies, even there, um, and we have seen this in recent work, uh, using a very large database uh, with 1.2 million companies from 45 countries, even there you, you see uh, that in the build-up of the credit cycle, uh, uh, you, you have a problem that, that risk is, is being more and more uh, poorly priced. And I, see, I say even there you see it because uh, this is certainly the, the, less, the least risky part of the system. And even there you see it. So um, I go to the next point. Uh, you also mentioned in the paper the dramatic changes in, in IT-based payments technology. And, and this, I, I feel, is also a point where it's not, it doesn't <coughs> receive enough attention. Uh, the, uh, the, um, what it means to have these uh, uh, payments uh, uh, systems, IT-based payment systems, 
and it 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 is it is it reminds uh, it reminds uh, me of the discussion uh, when we created um, uh, the the single uh, um, the single market for financial services 20 years ago when we started to create it. Uh, and Basel, and when the first Basel uh, regulation came into place, banks were complaining a lot uh, at the time that uh, regulation would make lending too costly and, and uh, would hurt the economy. But looking back, actually, a couple of years later, banks admitted themselves that the technological that the uh, investment into IT infrastructure and uh, keeping up with technological uh, uh, changes uh, when the first electronic payment system actually came up turned out to be much more costly and much more challenging than any uh, uh, changes in the regulatory environment. I, I have the impression we are again at, 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 at this juncture. There is a dramatic change in the, in the business model of banks that is driven by the need to rewrite codes, uh, uh, how banks actually deliver services to final, to final consumers. And this will turn out, again, this is my presumption, uh, far more challenging and far more costly uh, and will dem demand more investment than, than any, any regulatory change. Um, how, where are we with time? Just about there. Oh, okay. Then very, then very quickly to, um, because this is all the discussion of the paper still. My main concern with, the, with this excellent paper uh, is um, um, there, there are, there are two, two questions, or one question and one concern. The one question is um, um, the one. The question is uh, you use bilateral balance sheet data. So how did how do you address the accounting of <coughs> derivatives? Uh, the the accounting of derivatives we, we, we feel is is a tremendously difficult problem. As as you as as the system evolves, derivatives actually change sides. They can jump from the asset to the liability side and back. And and uh, how we want we wanted how you how you address this problem how to correctly account the financial derivatives uh, on on on, uh, on banks if you use balance sheet data and is there how do you assess the situation I don't know how well you know the European system uh, situation uh, how, what is your outlook uh, that banks bring more of the derivatives uh, on onto the onto the actual uh, reported balance sheets and 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 and. So uh, how, how do you see the evolution of the, of the off-balance sheet and, and on-balance sheet uh, division? And the main concern that I have when I, when I see the potential of, uh, of, the, of the method you propose, um, that this time we are very careful to bring something not too early to the market or to propose something not too early to policymakers. In your, in your paper, you mentioned several challenges uh, uh, concerning European data, and you do not even go into the area of cross-border, of, of the important dimension of cross-border uh, financial flows and cross-border banking, when, when I think about implementing something for, like this for the single supervisory mechanism in Europe. Um, and I, I think it would be a shame if we had a re repetition of the story that we had with optimal control theory. Optimal control theory was fine to fly to the moon because uh, politicians did not care how it works as long as you get there. And if we had tried to fly to the moon with the precision of macroeconomic models, we would by uh, asymptotically 
the, the probability would have been uh, approaching asymptotically zero, as you, as, as, as you know. I mean, never we would have gotten there. However, when uh, the, the Commission actually in the mid-'80s tried to convince ministers of finance that optimal control theory can much improve the policy discussion by actually spelling out objective functions and, and putting weights on the various parameters that you want to achieve, like unemployment, like balance, uh, a, balanced, uh, a balance of payment equilibrium, they, 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 it, it, it was too brutal. We, we, they, they would not be convinced. Uh, uh, they, they, they thought it is a black box. So I think the, the, uh, uh, this, this technology, like agent-based modeling, has, of course, this challenge. We have a skills gap. You have, uh, you, you meet, you have to meet the, address the skills gap already when you work on it and when you develop these models, but you have also the skills gap and the communication, communication gap when you have to uh, uh, explain to policy, uh, to actually users, how to use it to make this interface user-friendly and, 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 and how to use this in a way where people don't have the impression this is a black box and, and, and we, give all our, uh, we give our fate into a hand of, a, of, of computers. So uh, there is uh, there's the major concern, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your uh, uh, your ideas how to how to address it. I have several more points. Maybe in the discussion we can we can uh, come back to them. Thank you. There is PowerPoint, Eric, but for some reason your file doesn't open in PowerPoint. Yeah. So I need to get uh, this working. Uh, so I, I, think, a, I, think, thing. I, I think uh, given the IT problems and that we're almost, out of, <laughs> we're, all, we're almost out of time as well, maybe I'll just speak for literally five minutes. Uh, I'll just hit a few high points and then because I'm sure people want to get into the discussion because we're, we're almost, uh, I think we've only got ten minutes left and I know uh, people probably want to ask questions and have a discussion. Um, I, was looking I, 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 have, I do have some very pretty pictures, uh, you know, some nice uh, uh, results and uh, uh, and things like that, but uh, uh, you'll have to take my word for it. Um, you could perhaps turn that thing towards us. No, towards us. Uh, no, open. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't open. It, no. Something wrong with PowerPoint. No, the, no here it opens. It, it, it opens fine on, uh, uh, yeah. on the... Um, yeah, but that, that doesn't project But that, that doesn't... No. Yeah, it's not coming up on you the... You want to use the small screen? Uh, no, I, people won't be able to see. So I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, wait uh, uh, for a few minutes, and then uh, I, um, I'm sure we want to get into discussion. Uh, for those who are interested in the presentation, I, you know, we, maybe uh, we can put it on the, I don't know if there's a website for the conference or something, uh, something like that. Um, but uh, uh, my brief remarks are going to you know, build on uh, uh, Sherry's uh, presentation. I'm not so much going to comment on, on Sherry's paper because we're very much on the same page, but rather extend it by just talking for a few minutes about some of the work uh, that, that, uh, that we're doing, uh, particularly with some of the uh, central banks. Um, you know, if you put yourselves in the shoes of, of the central banks, they've got a, a pretty significant challenge these days. They've um, uh, been given both a whole new set of responsibilities for macroprudential uh, stability and also a whole new set of tools uh, to carry out those responsibilities, but very little experience in which tools work, which ones don't, what are the side effects, and also how the tools interact uh, with each other. You know, if we do this to capital ratios, uh, and we do that to, um, uh, uh, you know, to uh, uh, regulation, and then we do something else on the monetary side. You know, how do these uh, different policy levers uh, interact uh, 
uh, with each other. As one central banker told me, you know, we're in a situation now where we've got our, our foot on the monetary gas and our other foot on the macroprudential brake. You know, if you ever drive a car like that, the result is it usually skids off the road. So how do we prevent uh, those kinds of uh, situations? And if you look at the models and tools that the central banks have to answer these questions, uh, they're really not up to the, up to the job, and, and uh, I think that's increasingly well recognized. Uh, Andy uh, Haldane, who was just recently made the chief economist of the Bank of England, has a very nice analogy. Uh, he, he talks about um, uh, the, the, the traditional models uh, that have been used, the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, uh, as rocking horse models. So you imagine a rocking horse, it's this sort of single object, and you, you poke the rocking horse and it kind of wobbles around and then it you know, wobbles less and it settles to uh, equilibrium. And that's the basic idea of these DSGE models. You, you know, shock them and then there's some you know, perturbations in behavior over time and then it goes to a, a, a new equilibrium. And as he puts it, um, uh, that's not very helpful for understanding these types of problems. What we need is what he calls wild horse economics. So instead of a rocking horse, imagine a herd of wild horses out grazing on the grass, and maybe it's all quiet and the horses are just standing around together. Then all of a sudden something spooks one of the horses, and it, it jolts, and then another horse uh, jolts, and then it bites another horse, and that kicks another horse, and then you know, there's this kind of chain reaction of interaction between uh, the horses, and then pretty soon the whole thing is a you know, chaotic mess of, 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 of running horses. So his, his question or his challenge was, uh, can we build models for wild horse uh, economics? Uh, and that's where this technique of agent-based modeling comes in. It's, in, in fact, ideally designed to model exactly these kind of disaggregated interacting systems, uh, systems, as you know, Cherie uh, quite uh, uh, clearly showed, you know, that are built around, uh, around networks. And uh, so uh, we've been working in a consortium of 10 universities, uh, generously funded under the European Commission uh, FP7 program, a uh, project called CRISIS. Uh, and the coordinator is Domenico Delegati at, at Catholic University, and the uh, scientific coordinator is my colleague at Oxford, uh, Don Farmer. And uh, we're building a, a large-scale uh, macro-financial uh, agent-based model. And uh, again, there was more detail in the presentation, but the basic idea is actually pretty simple. That at the heart of the model is a network of, of banks uh, and of bank balance sheets. Uh, and so we're quite explicitly both modeling the stocks, the balance sheets, and the flows, the interactions uh, between these balance sheets. And then also interacting with this network of, of bank balance sheets uh, are a population of households. And again, we capture the heterogeneity, you know, bottom up. So you've got uh, rich households, poor households, households with big mortgages, households with small mortgages, you know, whatever the distribution looks like in, in real life, as much as we can uh, calibrate it. And then we have a population of firms. Again, heterogeneous, big firms, small firms, you know, firms in good financial condition, firms in bad financial condition, you know, calibrated to the, to the real world. Um, and then the last pieces of, of, of the model are, of course, a central bank uh, that um, uh, can intervene through both monetary side and through macroprudential tools, and eventually we'll also put in some representation of a fiscal authority you know, and, and, and sovereign uh, debt. And the elements of the model do exactly what you'd expect them to do. The, you know, the households buy stuff, they provide labor, they save, uh, they borrow, and you know, the firms make stuff and they invest and they uh, uh, save and borrow. Uh, as well, and then the banks also uh, trade with each other. So uh, what this model then <clears throat> allows us to do 
is uh, uh, model um, uh, do policy experiments um, uh, for these different kinds of macro uh, uh, prudential tools. And the key thing is it doesn't require us to make the strict assumptions that traditional models do. So, it, uh, so in terms of agent behavior, we can put in you know, uh, uh, perfect, uh, perfectly rational, you know, infinitely far-sighted agents if, if we want to, or at least a, a kind of simulation of a, of a, of a rational agent, um, and study what the behavior looks like under that. Or we can take the behavior out of behavioral economics. You know, we can go through all the you know, empirical evidence and behavioral economics and put that kind of stuff in, into the agent's uh, behaviors. And in fact, one of our collaborators is an experimental economist who is running real experiments with people in labs to help us calibrate the model. So we're, we're you know, not just sort of making up the calibrations, but taking them from lab experiments. Uh, we can also put in you know, institutional detail. We can, uh, we can uh, uh, make simplifying assumptions if, if that's appropriate, or if it really matters you know, how a certain market clears or the market, market microstructure, we can put that in too. So it's, it's a very flexible uh, uh, tool. Now, the kinds of, uh, uh, we're still, at, you know, at a relatively early stage. This is quite experimental. Um, but we're uh, just starting to calibrate it with real-world data for the UK and starting to run some policy experiments on it. So the kinds of things uh, that we're doing include um, uh, looking at uh, the effectiveness of the Basel regime, uh, you know, similar uh, some of the things uh, Sherry was talking about. Um, and you know, our finding, not surprisingly so far, is it's better than nothing, but it uh, doesn't solve the problem. Uh, uh, we also uh, have done some early work on uh, bail-ins versus bailouts, uh, and actually have a very interesting result, I think, there that uh, we show that uh, uh, bail-ins are superior under a wide range of conditions. Uh, uh, letting banks go bust uh, is actually superior uh, when the economy is in good shape and, and you don't have high systemic risk. Uh, it actually does make sense to let them go bust, but when you have high systemic risk uh, and in our recessionary conditions, then bail-ins uh, uh, turn out to be the best result. We didn't find any circumstance where tax, taxpayer-funded bailouts were the best, which is a, a kind of a provocative result. Uh, we'll see if it holds up to further testing, but at least it's interesting. Um, uh, we've also been, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, Stefan Turner, uh, has, uh, again, in some work with a similar flavor to uh, Sherry's, uh, been looking at a systemic risk tax. Uh, can you measure the contributions to systemic risk in the system from individual transactions? And as opposed to a Tobin tax, which just taxes all transactions uh, and has the effect of reducing transaction volume, which could then you know, lead to increased volatility, reduced liquidity, et cetera, uh, can you discriminate between uh, risky and less risky transactions and tax the risky ones, which then drives behavior toward less risky transactions and doesn't uh, reduce uh, liquidity? Uh, lastly, uh, some separate but related work, my colleague uh, Don Farmer and John Ginacopoulos at Yale and Rob Axtell built a nice model of housing bubbles uh, and fitted it with uh, data from Washington, D.C. and done a very sort of you know, detailed study of the Washington uh, housing bubble and uh, you know, have found that uh, loan-to-value ratios are just a very, very sensitive variable in both the formation of the bubble and, uh, and a potentially powerful policy tool in, in bursting uh, the bubble. And they compared that to interest rate policy and, and, and other hypotheses. So uh, while this, you know, this work is still uh, relatively early stage, uh, my colleague Doan estimates that agent-based models had about 500 person years of effort into them in, in total. 
whereas DSGs probably had about 30,000 person years. Uh, so you know, we have to be a bit modest about you know, the uh, amount of investment that's gone into it. Uh, you know, we think, we think it's, it's promising that um, uh, you can start to look at issues that just weren't possible to be looked at before. And you can take advantage of all this marvelous new data that's around it. You know, everybody's excited about big data, but what you actually do with this big data, this is one way of incorporating some of the information. Uh, it's not the only way, but it's one way from incorporating some of this uh, uh, nice microdata that's becoming uh, uh, more and more uh, available. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we need to move from uh, rocking horse economics to wild horse economics. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, everyone. I have to apologize for the IT. I will definitely write a nasty email about that. <laughs> I also didn't have time to introduce Eric. So this is Eric Beinhocker. He is the executive director of INET in Oxford. A long distinguished career, both in academia and before that he was at McKinsey. And we are very happy to have him here. And actually, I've seen some of the, the results that comes out of his center. It's fantastic work that he mentioned. And it would have looked very, uh, very well had he been able uh, to show that. So I would like to open, even though we run out of time, I guess you have to get up, you have to get up and leave. Those who want to stay here can ask some questions. The only problem I had with the people who talked today is that they all agreed, which is very uh, more <laughs> annoying. So I hope that somebody in the audience will say, but can these computers really help us understand human behavior or something like that? Are there any questions in the audience for the speakers or the discussion? should these guys come up? To yes. Yeah, sure, sure, you can yeah, come up. Yeah. You, yeah. Can, you can get the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether my Hard, but, um, I'm trying to understand how exactly in this model one uses the data to understand behaviors. That is, understand that you use it a lot to understand networks and who's connected to who and so on. Uh, in your presentation, you, you, you mentioned at the beginning that essentially you're going to use rule of thumb or some, some rules for, to, for, 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 for the behavior of agency, if I understood correctly. Um, uh, um, while in the in the discussion, it was explained that there are other ways. Now, I'm not particularly familiar with this model. I was wondering if you can actually use the data to try and understand behavior. Because that's kind of the key thing of, of the DSG philosophy against the Lutas critique. I was wondering what's the point, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the take? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for purposes of policy, I mean, I take a very distinct, different view from, I think, um, Eric. And I think uh, what you were saying about agent base, our agents, uh, these are just snapshots of actual bilateral positions. So I don't ascribe any uh, uh, behavior at that point in time. We're just studying the structures. Okay. So we're saying if this is what your balance sheets and this is what your liabilities, your counterparties are, this is the structure of the network and we work on the stability relative to the tier one capital. Remember, this is a we're trying to design something. We're trying to design a pigu tax. We're trying to design uh, how do we understand this network at this point in time? Is it more or less unstable compared to another point in time? So we are asking slightly different questions. So the behavioral thing, I mean, Sujit and I are of the view, first and foremost, we need to understand structures. You know, remember I went through all these structures. It wasn't. It wasn't random. It wasn't a complete graph. You know, to understand a structure and how that fails is the first order uh, of, of, of the challenge you know, when you're thinking about systemic risk. The behaviors are very complex because you know, my view is that we're the most protean and Machiavellian of all animals. We create, look at the rate of innovations. Now, the, the point about that is peer-to-peer um, you know, -peer lending, you know, this thing about where is money going. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface. And anyway, you know, so the idea that you, in the G models, 
every innovation is put in as white noise. Yesterday at dinner we were talking about that's not true. Structure changes come from technology changes, which if you think of it as a sort of computational response, uh, you know, we've got technologies which are actually, you know, parts and parcels of programs. You know, I talk, think of them as total computable functions. And this is not a set, it's not a set you can even search. And then we have a set of technologies that we already have, you know, stepping out of it, and we keep stepping out of it, we're in an arms race. Now, how do you deal with these sorts of things? That's what I call complex systems, complex adaptive systems, where there's structure changing dynamics coming from novelty and innovation. This is not something we have even begun to grapple with. I mean, I, I counted 16 uh, no, ex exogenous shocks in the ECB model, right? You know, there's, there's a productivity shock, there's a this shock, there's another shock, there's an output gap. There's all white noise terms hanging about. I mean, you know, that's not how the real world is. So in an agent-based model, what you find is that, you know, if you have structure changes, like suddenly you have a new sector coming in, like peer-to-peer -peer lending, it comes in. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in creating maps, you know, slightly different, you know, uh, way of thinking about the problem. You know, first you have to sort of get maps of things, and then, yeah. I, I, I yeah. So uh, we have a slightly uh, different approach. Um, we're uh, trying to uh, draw out of uh, the behavioral economics literature and, and other places and, and real-world data uh, to inform how the agent should be making decisions. Now, it's always a simplification. It's never going to be as rich as the real-world behavior. But the key thing is, is can you capture the kind of core essence of what people are doing? So. For example, the behavioral literature shows that in lots of situations, people use a, what's called an anchor and adjust heuristic, where you know, you've got some uh, some anchor of what's happened in the past, and you're extrapolating forward, you know, based on that. And so, you know, in some situations, we uh, use that, or we'll just take parameters, uh, you know, uh, uh, out of out of data uh, if if we have it. So, so we're trying to you know be uh, simple but uh, realistic. And it's different from assuming perfect rationality, which is, you know, uh, is not realistic. And we also assume agents may have limited information, which is which is also important. Yeah. Um, Question. Uh, I'm going to take up the theme of unity of science, but I'm going to come not from epidemiology, but from political science. I'm a political economist, and I haven't done any mathematical modeling since I was an undergraduate student. But I'm interested in the, how, how will you... Can these models deal with contingency uh, uh, that has to do with sometimes in certain formative moments institutions can go in different ways? Can they deal with counterfactuals? Uh, for example, can they deal with a question like if the Smithsonian Agreement in 1972 would have gone towards a more regulatory-based uh, financial order? If uh, IT technology in labor processes had been adopted in a different way, uh, in or automation have been uh, adopted in a different way in the 1980s to make technology more labor augmenting rather than capital augmenting. Is it possible to construct counterfactuals? I mean, uh, I, I can only give uh, examples. Like, we're really trying to work out what would be robust OTC derivatives reforms. You know, different type. We want to change the topology of the current uh, OTC derivatives markets into making it more sort of star oriented. You know, we want us to change the structure. Now, we want to know whether this structure is more stable than the other. Or how much how much collateral do you need? These are the sorts of questions we can actually test by using these technologies. We can throw in. I mean, so we are actually doing it. I, I, 
I prefer doing this, when I keep emphasizing data-based, I say go and hunt for the data and put that in. Because if you make up stuff, I'm sick and tired of making up stuff, because you find that depends, you, know, you, you bring in layers of assumptions that you oughtn't to let the data speak, and then you model it with the lightest of touches in terms of assumptions. So, the, and then on the basis of that, you can say actually, uh, you know, this, uh, this, uh, the idea that uh, Duffy and Zoo gives. It, we, you know, there are pitfalls. There are pitfalls in the reforms that we have suggested. Uh, it might end up, end up uh, generating more risk than it's trying to solve. Or if we are not aware that there are these pitfalls, we might again sleepwalk into one of these problems. And if you have this agent base for building with Mark Manning at, uh, um, you know, the Reserve Bank of Australia. You know, it gives you, uh, you know, it's pre-warned, uh, you know, forewarned as, uh, you know, you can sort of forestall a crisis because you are now aware that these are these possibilities and maybe you could then uh, do running repairs like Paul Tucker says. Uh, on the other hand, what, what generally, um, you know, policy design does is, which they did, at, uh, you know, in the so-called MAGDU report, they assumed post-reform there will be zero, zero probability of crisis. They assumed away the problem, mm. and I'm saying, how dare you, know, how dare you do it? I was, mm. I was actually a uh, academic consultant, and I had to shoot down my own report because it isn't, you know, we have to do it with the honesty and the sort of, you know, sort of elaboration, you know, as they say, as as complex as it needs to be, but no more, right? But the details are not there. Uh, you know, you want responding to the right questions in terms of policy design. May, may I on this one? Yeah. Uh, that uh, your 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 question on the counterfactual um, uh, really reminds me of the of the example uh, that I that I uh, mentioned with uh, control theory. Um, you know, the, for for me the counterfactual is it comes from from the time where uh, uh, alternatives all, only creating and imagining alternatives. You know, there's the in philosophy, there's the German term Gedankenexperiment. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, this comes from a time when it was very costly to even think an alternative. And, and, and here we are going in a completely different universe. We are not talking about one counterfactual. We are mm -hmm. talking playing through millions of yeah. scenarios. Yeah. And this is actually what ministers of finance in the mid-80s did not grasp. Mm -hmm. they, they refused to accept this. They, they came back to the commission and said, no, we don't want all these simulations. This is I mean, they didn't say this, but basically they said, I'm scared by having one million games played. Come back with five scenarios, and not more than five. So we are running into cognitive limits w with the end users, where we have to be very careful and have always to keep in mind what what uh, people found out about uh, why Apple was so successful because Apple was designed around user needs. And other people built other machines that maybe at, uh, along some metrics were more powerful, but they were not understanding what the user needs. The user wants to push on the button and this thing goes on and then it works. He does not want to know what an operating system is and he does not want to know what I'd have to do in rec edit as we did when uh, PCs came up and we were playing around and, and binging and whatever, binging and whatever. So the, the user needs, I think, will decide about the failure. And the, the question, the question uh, I have is um, this, you know, this dramatic graph that you have in terms of showing, showing the failure when it happens in real time mm. rather than much later. Mm. Uh, 
of course, the other possibility is what you would expect uh, in a very abstract way. I mean, if, if you have a superior technology uh, um, uh, that so far has uh, extracts its superiority from the fact that you use the information that is contained in the structured topology of the network and that has not yet tra uh, been transmitted into market prices that can be observed. And right now, this was a big distance. I mean, between uh, seven, 2007 and 2009, there was a big distance. Um, but uh, we would expect this distance to become smaller. We would would expect that um, more of these models being used uh, at different stages. We would we would uh, so actually in the end, hopefully, basically this this goes to at one point. I mean, it goes away, right? Uh, and and uh, because uh, for example, central clearinghouses. I mean, uh, they they would be natural users of the, of, of of this kind of model mm -hmm. because they could actually compute a haircut. Uh, uh, at, a, at a very high degree of precision, to 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 put to impose on 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 uh, on, on uh, securities posted by a particular cl uh, a clearing member or an end uh, financial institution that, that clears, and not uh, a quarter or uh, uh, twenty-five basis points, fifty-five basis points, but but really actually very precise right. measures, right? But as they would use this over time, you would expect uh, this difference in the system to become smaller and smaller. On to, on to, and, and, to be, on, and price discovery be, move closer to real time, also in terms of risk measures, right? Thank you very much. Is there one more question, otherwise we have to break? Just what you I have my concern about agent-based models is that they're so complex and rich and expressive that they can be calibrated to absolutely anything. <laughs> but your confidence on general in on extrapolating to new mm -hmm. cases is quite low. How do you deal with this? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, although if you actually compare them to the, you know, the number of variables that DSG models are calibrated against, it's actually not that different. So the same problem exists in, in DSG or any kind of complex uh, uh, macro model. Even though the core of DSG is fairly simple, the actual implementation in the you know, uh, in, in, the, in the models that are macro models that are used is is, is more complex. Um, the you know the the, the well the, there's uh, two uh, key points. One is that uh, you have to um, uh, understand the core dynamics of of, of the model uh, itself. You can't let the model be as complex as the reality that you're you know that you're 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 trying to model. So you have to be able to, in essence, tell a story. Of why the model is doing uh, uh, what it's uh, what it's doing, um, uh, it can't just be a black box. And uh, you know, second is uh, you know lots of, of testing and, and calibration uh, with real data, um, uh, which does constrain it. So you know, this housing market model that my colleagues have developed, um, what they do is actually is, is actually quite impressive because they fit it only with micro data you know, um, very granular data, and then they see if the model reproduces the macro result. And in some ways, that's actually a harder test than what the DSG uh, models are beating. Now, you know, to be fair, they, they, you know, they get it very well on some variables, less well on others, and, you know, it's not perfect, um, but it's, it's getting there. And, you know, then uh, I think that kind of a tool becomes useful in running these counterfactual scenarios. You know, what would you calibrate the model in 1990, run it forward, uh, you know, you know real-time, real-time series, you know, what if we had kept loan-to-value ratios, you know, the same? What if we had cut, uh, what if we had raised interest rates? 
and you'll get some results. Now, are those forecasts? Are they accurate? You know, what do they mean? Well, you know, your, your forecasting ability is still going to be questionable, but it will tell you that you know, the, the effect of, you know, it'll give you a magnitude and a sign and other things on the effects of, of policy that is very useful for policymakers. And again, you know, probably better than what we've got today. So we have to be a bit humble about our ability to do stuff, but at least, uh, you know, see it as more useful than what we're doing now. I just want to just sorry, point sorry. out, mine is not a calibration model. What we're doing in India is data visualization. We don't make any assumptions either of behavior. It, it's, mm. it's data driven. We're not calibrating anything. It's, it's very important to understand. It's not a black box, it's the mm. actual data. Right. Um, and the third thing is, second thing is, you, know, you said about the cross-border flows. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's the, the Oli Castro and the ECB paper that we say that is the way to go. Yeah. Cross-border flows, link it back into the real sectoral flow of funds. So it's da data-driven. We do not make assumptions. We, you know, there are 100 households or 100 banks. We've got data about them, and then we you know, just model it. Um, you know, or it's not a calibration exercise. Can mm. chairman... Chair and sort of thank the speakers. Take it offline, either now or later, over drinks. And those who want to see Corona have to go. Thank you very much. Thank you.